Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. Now, we have an extremely distinguished guest to interview today, Wednesday, the 19th of May. So let me hand things over to my co-host, Alan Gingell, the National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, to offer his welcome. Thanks, Darren. Look, it's a great pleasure to welcome Linda Jakobsen to the podcast. Linda is the founding director and deputy chair of the not-for-profit China Matters, which is an independent policy institute and one for which, full disclosure, I also sit on the board of directors. As I've mentioned on the podcast before, I think uh, China Matters aims to advance sound China policy and stimulate a nuanced and informed public discourse about China's rise, wouldn't that be nice, and its implications for Australia without taking any specific institutional view itself. Linda is Finnish, and before moving to Australia in 2011, she worked for over 20 years in China. Her most recent job there was Director of China and Global Security Program at CIPRI, which, as many of you know, is the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. She came here to Australia in 2011 to serve as Program Director East Asia at the Lowy Institute, and in 2015, she founded China Matters, and she was its first CEO until 2019. She's the author and or co-author of lots and lots of books and other publications about Chinese politics and society. She's taught at a number of eminent institutions, and uh, since moving to Australia, she's also looked with the um, the dispassion of a foreign anthropologist in some ways, I'd say, Linda, at Australia-China relations. She's also one of the sanest and most balanced analysts I know in this fraught area. So terrific to have you on the podcast, Linda. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Darren, for having me. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Let's begin with some background. Uh, you're the only uh, Finnish sinologist I know. How did you become interested in in China? Isn't it an odd trajectory for someone from Northern Europe? So, Alan, I've had to many times in my life explain how on earth a Finn ended up working and living in China for 22 years. Let me begin by saying I'm from a very international family. My father was a Finn. My mother, British-born. I was brought up the pivotal years of my childhood in the United States when my father was ambassador of Finland to the United Nations. So China during those years when I was growing up in the United States was obviously a topic of conversation in the United Nations when Beijing became the sole representative of China. And I think something stuck because I found little articles that I've cut out from Time and Newsweek at age 11, 12 about Mao Zedong and China. So I was fascinated by China is the short story. Later on, I decided that fascination is going to lead me to take a year off in my career. I was a journalist at the time, again, a journalist specializing in international affairs. And I wanted to go to China for a year and write a book about China. I think that was the most decisive move I made. Many people go places, spend a year, have a terrific time, but never go back. That year changed my life. I decided that China is such an important country, even for someone from Finland specializing in international relations, that I'm going to devote my life to trying to understand this country and want to explain it to others. And that was the year 1987 to 1988, um, a fantastically interesting time politically in China. So that's how one thing led to the other. I made the decision to leave journalism. I became a think tanker. It took me 10 years to get there. And the rest is pretty much as you read out in my bio. Um, China appealed to me during that first year in a way that's very difficult to describe. I felt very at home trying to understand the culture and the people I met were instrumental in that decision that I want to try and figure out what's going on in this country 
which I foresaw was going to have a huge impact on the world. My closest friends, besides my husband and two girlfriends from my youth and early years as an adult, are Chinese people born in the PRC. My godchild's family has emigrated. But the human beings I met and the discussions I had and the things I learned from those people are probably the reason why I then decided to devote my career to understanding China. Linda, you mentioned that you came from a diplomatic family in Finland and you've now come out to Australia, both of us grappling with the issue of big powers in our near neighbourhood, Finland, of course, has Russia right next door. Uh, China's a bit further away for Australia. But what does Finland have to teach us, do you think, about the management of great powers by smaller neighbours? Oh, I've thought about this quite a bit, Alan, off and on over the last 30 years, but more and more since moving to Australia. And quite concretely, over the past few months, I'm in the midst of writing a longish piece about the ways in which China's rise and Beijing's intention to become the dominant country in the region is affecting international relations in Asia. And I'm trying hard to weave in the ways in which Finland used to deal with the enormous pressure it was under for over 40 years to conform to the Soviet Union's wishes when making decisions about its foreign and security policy. I've looked quite closely at the concept, for example, of Finlandization, what it meant, how it was interpreted by Finns, by others, why there was, why there still is uh, stigmatization linked to that term, and so on. Obviously, no sovereign nation wants to be told by another government how to craft its foreign policy. I haven't drawn firm conclusions, but I do think that there are lessons to be drawn for Australia and others in our region from the example of Finland. But I have two caveats. First, one cannot compare Australia and Finland as strategic entities, because Australia has an alliance with the United States, which means all of its strategic decisions are touched by the alliance. Australia is not trying to stay neutral, as Finland was so desperately trying to do during the Cold War. Australia has chosen. Obviously, there are several other differences too, but this is a fundamental one. And then the second caveat is, let me just spell out what I mean by the example of Finland. I mean the process by which relentless pressure by a big and powerful neighbor, one that was previously an overlord, as well as an invader, and was known to still have the capability to invade, was fended off by a small country, one which was adamant about preserving its independence and everything that its citizens hold dear. Its democracy, multi-party political system based on free and fair elections, and its way of life, which is very similar in all of the Nordic countries. One that's grounded in a belief in individual rights, in gender equality, in an unpoliticized civil service, in freedom of speech, and so on, and is driven by uh, Lutheran worth ethic. So with those two caveats, I think perhaps I have three lessons that one could take away from the Finland example, and that is, first, leadership matters. Deft leaders craft policy based on deep knowledge of the hegemon, taking into account assessments from many quarters, even those that they don't agree with. And they rely on a core of skillful diplomats who also deeply know the hegemon. So statesmanship and diplomacy are key. The choices that Finland's president and on certain issues, the whole cabinet had to make when demands from Moscow needed to be responded to in a carefully worded, nuanced manner were absolutely crucial for Finland to remain independent and avoid the fate of the other Eastern European countries in the Soviet bloc. In Australia, the very few senior officials, I should say public servants, with deep knowledge of China, have been sidelined in the policy deliberation processes. The intelligence and security establishment today drive the agenda when it comes to China, rather than function in a supportive role. 
and they are then encouraged by one faction of the governing party, which in turn has its own political agenda. I think this is to the detriment of Australia, and obviously the recent articles by Max Such have shed light on some of these developments. The second lesson I think we can take from the example of Finland is the need to not only secure the support of the population of how to deal with a regional hegemon, despite, of course, in a democracy having to suffer the opposition's criticism about any given policy decision. Equally important, I think, is the leadership's determination to foster among voters a realistic understanding of why unpopular decisions sometimes need to be made. So public opinion matters, but the leadership can shape it either positively or negatively. And in my view, the present Australian government is promoting a one-sided negative view of China instead of a multi-thronged narrative about, as I like to say, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because there's plenty of all three when we start talking about the People's Republic of China. But the present government supports only the ugly narrative. In Finland, in contrast, Parsikivi, the man who served as president for a decade after the end of the Second World War, managed to instill in Finns a firm belief in realism, that a small country cannot always conduct its foreign affairs purely from a selfish point of view of upholding all of its values. Rather, when it was in the national interests, and of course maintaining independence is paramount as a national interest, Finland did at times have to remain silent, though it would have wanted to speak up and condemn the Soviet Union for any given action. Or it might have wanted to join NATO, but could not, and had to ultimately agree to a defense agreement with words such as cooperation and assistance included, an agreement that most Finns found repelling and knew that it was not in their interest if it ever had come to fruition. The fact that Parsikivi was able to turn the tide in the national narrative was really quite a feat. One has to remember that Finland and the Soviet Union had fought a war against each other. There were, there still is today, bitter, hostile, generally speaking, negative feelings toward Russia among Finns. But please don't misunderstand me. There were many times Finland pushed back and refused to give in to Soviet demands. Finlandization has come to mean to most people something quite negative, giving in, acquiescing. But that's not the whole story. The diaries of Parsikivi are really illuminating. So to bring this back full circle to Australia, I do think it's in Australia's interests that politicians emphasize a multi-dimensional narrative about the PRC, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And lastly, the third lesson from the Finlanders' example has to do with a great power's impact on domestic politics and society at large. The Soviet pressure and Soviet attempts to meddle in Finnish society created a whole string of dishonest interactions and suspicions among citizens of different political persuasions and also towards those who stood to benefit financially from good relations with the Soviets. There were those who, to be frank, sucked up to Soviet diplomats, also to other Soviet officials, to Soviet businessmen who were based in Helsinki. There were also those who would have nothing to do with the Soviets. And then there were those who had to deal with the Soviets because of their work and tried to stay impartial. All of these interactions had flow-on effects which fostered a culture of kowtowing, double-faced behavior, dishonesty. It's really been fascinating, but also quite alarming to read the memoirs of Finnish government officials and also some business executives that have been published since the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991 and since Finland became a full-fledged EU member. This oppressive cloud created by Moscow led to undeniable rot in Finnish society. So I do agree that Australia must be aware of PRC attempts to interfere in Australian society. But 
The recent espionage and foreign interference laws have in many areas actually created new problems rather than prevent or even confront genuine harassment activities in Australia by PRC officials. In fact, China Matters has just today published an excellent policy brief by Melissa Conley-Tyler and Julian Dusting, and they explain vividly the flaws in this legislation. I've been privy many times in Australia to situations where kowtowing takes place. For example, I've been present when business executives have behaved with deference in front of PRC officials, criticizing their own government. But then these same individuals at an event where a minister or even the prime minister is explaining Canberra's China policy remains silent. Or when a fellow board director has been asked to tone down his lecture because the event host has suddenly heard that a new consul general from the PRC has confirmed attendance and no one wants to offend his feelings. In the latter case, I just couldn't believe my ears. This so reminded me of my youth in Finland. On the other hand, many Australians feel that they are Australian officials who kowtow toward the other great power, the United States. And they say that sucking up to the Americans has led to distortions in Australian political life. And many of them advocate a much more independent Australian foreign policy. Malcolm Turnbull, back in 2011, if you remember, spoke of Gillard's doe-eyed fascination with Obama. But over these 10 years that I've been in Sydney, I do feel that the exaltation by one Australian prime minister after another of the quote-unquote great mateship between the United States and Australia has become more frequent and stronger. How many times have I heard a public servant or minister saying in private, ah, oh, there's been constant pressure from the Americans on this issue. So that fear of abandonment, Alan, that you've so eloquently written about, still haunts Australians and leads to unhealthy manifestations in how those in Canberra deal with their counterparts in Washington, D.C. Linda, thanks for that. That's, that's really fascinating. And I, I can't resist the temptation to really put on my theorist's hat because when I hear the way you characterized Finland, there were two variables that stuck out to me that seemed to allow you to draw a distinction between Finland and, and Australia now. One was sort of discipline, which you described as, as leadership, but I think of it as, as discipline by the leadership. And the other one was sort of a deep knowledge or a permeation of that foreign power, in Finland's case, through in an awareness of the Finnish public. And I think it's fair to say, you know, we can debate more the Australian response later that our leaders have not exhibited such discipline. And I think it's also fair to say that you don't have that deep permeation of China through the Australian population. And so for me, as thinking about this in theoretical terms, these are two big differences in the bilateral relationship. Uh, and so I'm wondering, you know, if we look around the region, is there a country that more closely resembles Finland? Because my theory would be the reason why Australia has been able to go in the direction it has is because we have a geographic separation and we don't face that continual existential presence the way that Finland does. And that has allowed us to be undisciplined. In many ways, one of the manifestations of us being the lucky country, you know, this geographic advantage, this favourable economic conditions, is that we can be complacent, as many Australian commentators have described. And if we had had that disciplining impact, perhaps we would have done something differently. And of course, the country that comes to mind is South Korea, a country that has a much more, I would say, disciplined approach towards China and also has that yeah, you know, the presence of China is obviously very, very overwhelming in, in their worldview. Um, so South Korea, or is there any other country in the region that you think exhibits similar regularities to the Finland-Russia relationship in its relations with China? That's a very interesting way to summarize, Darren, and I'm digesting it. Um, certainly, I agree with you that geography determines destiny in many cases. Mm. I think if you were to ask me, are there other Finlands in Asia, my spontaneous reaction would be that there are many Finlands in Asia. I think just about every government, but especially governments of small and medium-sized countries in Asia, are struggling to find the most effective 
policies to avoid a situation in which Beijing's will is imposed upon their decision-making against their will. So that's what I mean. In a sense, there are numerous Finlands in Asia today. There's no questioning that China's rise economically, politically, militarily, on all of these fronts, is challenging the whole of Asia. And of course, smaller countries and those that are not allies of the United States, for this reason I'm a bit hesitant about your South Korea example, are in the most difficult position because they do not want to choose, just like Finland tried its utmost to avoid choosing during the Cold War. But South Korea, you're right, has throughout history had to deal with being wedged between China and Japan. That anxiety that the wedge brings with it continues to this day. And we see that strategic anxiety sometimes making South Korea lean a bit more towards Beijing, never towards Japan, but at least taking a stance away from Beijing. We've seen this in the last 30 years, at least as long as I've closely watched South Korea. But you do point out a very important facet of strategic thinking in South Korea. And I think this pertains to North Korea as well, in Korea generally, on the Korean peninsula. And that's that very deep knowledge, understanding of what China is, what the People's Republic of China is, but also what China as a civilization is. It's in the DNA of Koreans, just as understanding Russian history and the legacy of the Russian Empire and what the Soviet Union was, is in the DNA of Finns. Yeah, I think that's fascinating, fascinating. Well, let's turn to China. There seems to be a broad consensus that China has changed over the past 10, 15 years. And whether one marks that turning point at 2008 or 2012 or even later. So how has your own understanding of China changed, especially under Xi Jinping? I mean, everyone, and I include this podcast here, you know, trots out phrases like China has become more assertive. But then I ask myself, well, well, who is China when in that question or in that statement? I mean, are we talking about Xi Jinping himself? Are we talking about the Politburo, the CCP more broadly, or indeed other groups in society more broadly upon whom the government relies upon for support? So, I mean, I guess my question is, what does China want? But how do we even answer a question like that? You know, who is China in that statement or in that question? The standard answer, Darren, to what China wants is that it wants to be powerful and wealthy. I agree. But that's what all great powers want. Another standard answer is that the leadership of the Communist Party of China wants to ensure that the party stays in power. Well, so do political parties the world over. Thirdly, one often hears observers say, that the Communist Party knows it must produce better living standards for ordinary people to be viewed as legitimate. I agree. But that too is, of course, generally speaking, true of all governing parties. So I'm going to try and be a bit more specific and keeping in mind your pertinent point about who is, quote, unquote, China. I'll start first from the leaders of the CPC and in particular Xi Jinping and explain what they want. I'll refer to them simply as Beijing. But later, I'll explain a bit about my thoughts of what ordinary citizens want. And lastly, what do political and business elites want? Well, specifically, Beijing wants the People's Republic of China to be the predominant power in the region. What then does that mean? It means that Beijing wants governments around the region, when they make important foreign and security policy decisions, to take into consideration Beijing's stance. And this applies especially to Southeast Asia. I think it's fair to say that since Xi Jinping came to power, now nine years ago, Beijing's expectations toward Southeast Asian states has changed. They're now expected to have a good understanding of PRC national interests, PRC red lines, and the repercussions of crossing those red lines. It used to be Washington which was consulted first. Under Xi, the expectation is that Beijing interests are considered first in Southeast Asian capitals. 
not the interests of Washington. I often argue that Xi's ambition is not for the PRC to be a dominant global power, not at least in the way that the United States is a global military power. But that does not mean that Xi does not want to reform and modify the international order to better protect, better advance PRC interests and PRC needs. She absolutely does want to do that, as you, Darren, and Natasha Kassam have explained very well in your recent Australian foreign affairs piece. But I don't see Xi Jinping overturning the international order. I often use a metaphor as an author. She wants to edit the book in parts quite substantially, but he is not planning to rewrite the book. China is not a status quo power, but it certainly is not a revolutionary one either. So what does Xi Jinping want? He wants China to be the world's leading innovative power, the leading science and technology power. He knows China has to be a global trailblazer when it comes to green economy, a savvy tech digital economy. So innovation is key to China's continued prosperity, and that in turn is the basis of legitimacy for the Communist Party. You asked what has changed since Xi came to power, and I'll discuss three developments briefly. First is that the PRC has, with remarkable speed and remarkable agility, become a forceful actor within international institutions over just one decade. And I presume we're going to see a lot more of this. The PRC wants to ensure that numerous governing bodies in the international order are aware of what Beijing views as its core interests. And when that's not possible, it may well opt to establish a new institution, or perhaps it'll establish an ad hoc group or a forum. The Communist Party is much more agile and able to adapt than many people realize. Beijing already today dominates the process of standards being approved and norms being approved for key technologies, especially for emerging technologies. But I do need to point out that this happened well before Xi became CPC General Secretary. When we lived in Beijing, started in 2004 up until 2011, in other words, a year before Xi's ascent, Beijing already was talked about as a major global standards setter in any informed discussion about what does China want. It's Australian policymakers who were not aware of it. Second point, what has changed under Xi is Beijing has quite openly begun to think of itself as a great power. And this is a clear change in mindset. As we all know, Deng Xiaoping did not advocate that Beijing would openly discuss itself as a great power. On the one hand, this means that Beijing views as necessary PRC pushback when it sees its interests encroached upon. For example, from Beijing's point of view, its actions in the South China Sea have been legitimate because it needs a maritime buffer zone to protect against any vulnerability from an attack from the sea. It's got a very long coastline, and in the 1800s, the Chinese empire started to crumble because of invaders approaching from the sea. In the same vein, I think Beijing is no longer going to tolerate being treated as a junior partner of the United States. But on the other hand, Beijing does know that as a great power, the PRC must contribute much more to global public goods and is already doing so, especially in the region, although this is a theme that quite a lot of Western media has not picked up on. And then that leads me to the third point. I think Xi Jinping has tapped into a sentiment that his countrymen, to a large extent, agree with, that the time has come for the PRC to take a less submissive stance toward the demands of outsiders and especially the United States. I don't know how many times when I lived in the PRC during the Hu Jintao period, so that's 2002 to 2012, I heard acquaintances, friends, political analysts, foreign policy specialists bemoan, how long more must we meekly accept the demands of the United States and others because they are instrumental to China's modernization drive? When can we finally say what we really think? So the more assertive China that we're now witnessing was bound to emerge. 
She has moved more rapidly than anyone expected. He seems to be in a hurry. Now is the PRC's moment. He's more ambitious and seemingly more fearless of the possible repercussions than anyone expected. But I think that the fact that the PRC today stands up forcefully, what it believes is rightfully its interests, should not come as a surprise. Finally then, what do people in China think? Linda, can I interrupt you for a minute and and just insert a a follow-up, acknowledging that you're halfway through your answer? Because you began, you know, with... China wants wealth and power. It wants the government wants its own legitimacy. It understands it needs to deliver um, prosperity to, to its people. And throughout your entire answer, you could drop in the United States or other great powers in history. We want deference for our interests. We want to dominate technology. We want to secure um, maritime reaches and so forth. And so this, of course, raises the the question and the question that Natasha and I grappled with in our Australian Foreign Affairs piece that Alan and I have disagreed about, I think, on some level on this podcast, is can you just drop in any great power into this discussion? Or is China unique? And if it is unique, is the source of that uniqueness its particular model of governance? Is it its ideology, its culture? So, Darren, I think there's been a lot written and said about this approach to the exceptionalism of China the exceptionalism of the United States. Generally speaking, the exceptionalism debate is one that's always intrigued me. Certainly, a Chinese political thinker would immediately answer China's history, which reaches back thousands of years, the way China politically was organized for hundreds and hundreds of years, how the state controlled political life over the centuries, still has an impact when we think of what China wants, what China aspires to as a great power. I think there's been quite a lot written about China wants to go back to the days when others in the tributary system came and kowtowed to Beijing, and Beijing was the Middle Kingdom. There are elements of that thinking probably in PRC political thinking today, but I think that's taking it much too far. Beijing As I said previously, the CPC has amazingly been able to adapt to modern times. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I guess the question then uh, is how does the rest of China fit into that process? You have your own Australian foreign affairs piece published, I believe it was the inaugural issue of the journal back in 2017, titled What China Wants. And there was one line in particular that that jumps out at me now. I mean, we, we read it closely in in writing our own piece. But you said that back in 2017, um, that respect amongst the Chinese population for the party was in decline. And you pointed to many of the corruption scandals. And of course, we all know how firmly the leadership has come down on corruption in these recent years. And so I'm interested in, in how the rest of China outside Beijing fits into our conception of China. And is this question of respect one that's changing? Um, is respect at greater levels now? Does it even matter how much respect there is? A very good point. And certainly, respect is an important element when I start thinking about how what China wants from the perception of ordinary Chinese differs, I think, from Xi Jinping. Because I'm not at all convinced that Xi Jinping today would put respect at the very top of the list of priorities. Of course, it's a terrible generalization. There are 1.3 billion PRC citizens. And that's always worth remembering when we talk about what do ordinary Chinese people want. But I'm going to focus on informed middle-class citizens, especially those who have a college education, live in an urban area. These are people who have been abroad for work or for holiday. They own an apartment, they own a car. So people that Australians can easily relate to. They too obviously want the PRC to be wealthy and powerful. They too want to see living standards rise. They very much want social and political stability. But there are a few things that they want. Respect, I've already mentioned, is one of them that are not so high on Xi Jinping's list, at least the way I've interpreted Xi Jinping. But more important than the respect aspect is that People in China, especially the middle class, crave a more just society. 
one with much less arbitrary use or misuse of power. But as long as the Communist Party is above the law and there isn't an independent juridical system, there will be no rule of law in China. And I do not foresee Xi Jinping having the political courage to accept an independent juridical system. So that's first and foremost a huge priority about what does China want when we think about ordinary people and especially middle-class citizens. But then respect, in my opinion, is second on the list. They crave for the PRC to be respected internationally. There's this very complex sense of inferiority, which is just below the surface. And it comes through in private conversations with PRC middle-class citizens, despite all the tough language that we hear about in the media from PRC nationalists. Many of my friends and acquaintances, and I would say most of them are all middle-class urban citizens, acknowledge that without more accountability, without more transparency in the political system, without a basic respect for human rights by Beijing, the Communist Party is never going to command respect by Western nations. And that, I think, is a challenge for them. And lastly, I think I would like to say a few words about what the political elites, even the business elites, want when we ask what does China want because they share all of the desires of the middle classes. But in addition, I think they're deeply worried about the power that Xi Jinping has amassed for himself. They absolutely detest the cult of personality that has emerged around Xi. My closer friends speak about this quite openly. They worry it's going to lead to all the unhealthy distortions that existed during the last two decades of Mao Zedong's life. And they're also very critical of Xi Jinping's decision to curb term limits, to remove term limits, I should say, because they fear political instability and intra-party fighting when there is no agreed-upon successor waiting in the winds, waiting for the chance to govern, gaining experience. So norms and practices which have for 30 years instilled predictability have now been trampled on. And many among the various political elites, and they are really many kinds of political elites in China, feel that Xi Jinping moved too fast in the international arena and unnecessarily attracted the wrath and pushback measures by the United States, when a slower pace and an overtly less ambitious agenda would have given the PRC more time to become richer and more powerful. So they worry, to put it colloquially, that the PRC has overreached. What then would be the mechanism through which such worries could see the government exercise more restraint or to, to reorient itself? Is it sort of popular protest? Is it informal you know, communications um, from business elites and other political elites? What could restrain some of the worst excesses of the last 20 years of, of Mao's life, as you put it? I think that is a huge question and there aren't really very good answers. Obviously, Xi Jinping has appointed loyal lieutenants to most important positions within the party today. I've always said that the CPC leadership lives in a state of existential anxiety because they know what happened in the Soviet Union. They talk about the Soviet example. They fear losing power and they know that they don't have as many outlets for popular dissatisfaction to be vented as they are in democracies. And I think Xi Jinping lives even more so in a state of existential anxiety because of the huge amount of power that he's amassed and also because he's broken some of the rules that would have and have created checks and balances previously. So he knows there's dissatisfaction among party officials. He knows that he has to keep a check on them. How dissatisfaction could manifest itself I don't believe that popular protest is the way we're going to see it happen in the near future. Repression is at one of its highest levels at the moment in the PRC since I moved to China in 1987. So it's going to be from within the party that change comes if change is to come. Central to the question of how China is changing is how its interests are changing, and this is what we've been discussing. But it seems harder than ever to actually answer the question of what China wants because of the increasingly closed nature of its system. 
You know, for example, I've heard many people say that their own contacts and interlocutors inside China have become much more guarded in their communications in recent years. And this was before COVID-19. So, you know, we all need to understand what China wants and what it will want into the future. But the prior question to that is, how do we go about answering that question? How do we go about learning and through what processes can we find out about what China wants? And so I've asked this to some others on the podcast before, is, is Pekingology going to become what criminology was during the Cold War? I don't think so. And I see this from a different point of view. I admit 22 years of living in China is a long time. But Pekingology, terrible word, is certainly very different today than criminology. Despite the closed nature of a one-party authoritarian state, China specialists know so much more today about what goes on in the People's Republic of China, about the Communist Party, about decision-making processes, about even internal discussions than Russia Soviet specialists knew about the Soviet Union during the Cold War. But having said that, I think most Western observers of international affairs know very little about the PRC, in Australia especially. Most foreign policy commentators have scant knowledge of how China functions, why the leadership uses the terminology it does, what are the policy goals, and so on. Some China watchers are often unaware of what the Communist Party publishes. Many of the most important policy documents that both the CPC and the PRC put on their websites inform you of these priorities and pathways forward. Timothy Heath, a colleague who I respect greatly, a man who used to work as a China analyst at the U.S. Pacific Command in Hawaii and is now at RAND, has quite rightly, I think, remarked that we could do a lot better in the West in understanding what the CPC wants if only we would bother to read what their documents say. Few people bother. I think Australians, for example, should seek out foreign news outlets and foreign policy-relevant academic pieces the New York Times China coverage is excellent. Australian-born Chris Buckley is one of the best China journalists I have ever met. I think one should regularly read Sinicism newsletter, SubChina, Wire China. And of course, there is an Australian source I think I want to mention, and that's the new China Nasan by Yun Zhang and Adam Ni. But besides reading, it's really important to be able to meet with PRC colleagues, whether they're government officials, business people, researchers, and hear them out. Even official discussions are informative. You need the interaction to understand. These face-to-face -face discussions with people only get better when they are people with which you already have a trustworthy relationship. And obviously, these relationships are built up over years, if not decades. So yes, under Xi, people have become more guarded. And of course, especially if the foreigner can't speak the language. But for example, two years ago, I took a China Matters study tour to Beijing about six months before COVID broke. It was a small group of participants, three business executives, three politicians, Ted O'Brien, Richard Miles, Tanya Plibersek. And we had absolutely fascinating, candid discussions behind closed doors with a number of people from all walks of life, including government officials. So I personally have not found that Xi's repression has stopped me from understanding as best as I can, obviously now during COVID from afar, what is going on in China. I think learning Mandarin is absolutely essential and it should be encouraged in every possible way in Australia. Equally important, acquiring what I call China literacy should be supported. Australians with knowledge of foreign policy need to spend time in China as professionals, not only as students. There is a handful now in Australia of a new generation of China specialists with Mandarin skills and an understanding of international relations. And that's really important. It's good news. But for a country that is so economically dependent on China, it is incredible that there are not more China literate and Mandarin fluent policy specialists. I think Australia should have long ago tapped into the wealth of know-how and understanding among Chinese Australians. But as we know, and it's been well documented in recent months, ethnically Chinese people, and especially those with family ties in the PRC, 
have difficulty getting security clearances for government jobs because of suspicions of their loyalty. And then many shy away from policy jobs outside of government for the same reason. So it is a challenge at the moment in Australia to, quote unquote, read the tea leaves, in part because of COVID, we can't go there and talk to our interlocutors. But a lot of effort still needs to be made by Australia to encourage and cultivate a new generation of China watchers who have that on the ground experience. Does your answer, are you given, Paul, I mean, you mentioned Chris Buckley. I mean, he's obviously not in China at the moment, um, and it's unclear whether he'll be able to return. I also think of the two Michaels, the Canadians um, who are caught up in a political dispute, but has left them imprisoned. And of course, you've got other Chinese, sorry, Australian citizens who are imprisoned in China. And I, I think there are many in the Australian space who see all this. They see the departure of ABC journalists as well, and they're reluctant, you know, to take your advice and engage more fully. And this is putting to one side concerns you've raised about, you know, the Australian government's policy and issues with getting security clearances. There is an overall environment of greater fear. And I'm trying to square that with, you know, how do we get past that? You know, what's your reaction to all of these concerns? I think they're credible concerns. I think it's perfectly understandable that, especially during the last two to four years under Xi, the repressive environment does raise legitimate worry about a person's safety. I've had many young Australians, people who have worked at China Matters with me, brilliant to be China specialists, say that they've put so much energy and effort into learning Mandarin and doing all the things that one should do to become a China specialist and want to sort of follow my path. But at the moment, is it a career path they should continue? I understand that. I do think this is a unique period. I don't think this level of repression can last forever. And so perhaps some of my words should have been amended to take into consideration my firm belief that China cannot continue to flourish which is an absolute prerequisite for the Chinese Communist Party to stay in power if they don't at some point Mm. ease off on the kind of repression that makes Australians and many other countries' citizens understandably worried about being Mm. in China. I see that as inevitable. Something has to give. In the interim, it's quite plausible to improve one's Mandarin and get to know Chinese culture by spending some time in Taiwan. That's an option. Okay, Linda, just one more question about China itself. And I appreciate I've been dominating the microphone and I'll certainly hand things over to Alan next. I heard a very interesting comment on a podcast some time ago and I wrote it down. Here is the quote. It's a couple of hundred families, a few thousand people. That's it. That's the political class in China, end quote. Now, for a country of 1.4 odd billion people, a ruling communist party of over 90 million members, that statement, which was a throwaway line, almost a glib statement on this podcast, it blew my mind. And it has all sorts of implications for my own understanding of the mechanisms that drive policymaking in China. So can I ask you, one, to comment on what the size of China's political elite is? Is it really that small? Uh, And two, more generally, are are there things that mainstream policy discussions on China in the West and in Australia in particular misses or gets wrong about elite politics in China? I think you've asked a really interesting question, which made me think a lot. Dan, first to the question about how big or small is the governing elite in a country of 1.3 plus billion people. Um, It is amazingly small. The Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party has 203 full members and 164 alternate members. So that's 367 people who are basically the individuals who, quote unquote, run China. Now, above the Central Committee is the Politburo. It has 25 members. And then you have the Standing Committee of the Politburo, which only has seven members, all of them men. And I should add that only one woman sits on the present Politburo of 25 members. So it is an amazingly tiny number of people at the pinnacle of power. 
even the number of people who participated in the last 19th Party Congress, that was in 2017, 2,287 delegates is amazingly small. But what's interesting is the domination today, more than during the Hu Jintao era of 2002 to 2012, of the party. That Xi Jinping has really strengthened the role of party members in a way that puts government ministers in a subordinate position. This is very difficult for any person brought up in a democracy to understand that, for example, out of these 25 pivotal Politburo members, there are 13 who have no portfolio in the PRC government. When I first discovered this, I was writing a report about new foreign policy actors for SIPRI. This blew my mind that there could be such powerful people in China who actually had no day-to-day government work to do. And if you think in terms of hierarchy, it's mind-boggling that these people who are extremely influential within the party make decisions about the direction of China are people we know very little about because they don't interact in the state-to-state relations with other countries. Among those 25 Politburo members, there are eight provincial party secretaries. So that brings me to the question of central-local relations in China, which are pivotal and are certainly an important part of policymaking that seldom figures in any Western policy commentary, let alone media reporting. This continuous central-local division of power and the various power struggles between provincial leaders and the central government leaders is a continuous feature of PRC politics. It's complex, it's significant. Just as an example, provincial party secretaries of border provinces that sit on the Politburo will have their own way of trying to impact the central government, what it is that's in the PRC interests when it comes to crafting foreign policy toward border countries or countries, generally speaking, on the periphery. I'm thinking about PRC-Thailand relations, PRC-Myanmar relations, PRC-Laos ties, and so on. So the way the party dominates all facets of decision-making, even at the very top, and also with regard to foreign policy, is something which certainly has become a dominant feature of the Xi Jinping era. As for what the West misses, I think another thing that the West, besides the central local power tensions, misses is the diversity of opinions on any given important issue, which is evident when you read the blogs in the PRC or even some of the hard copy publications. Too often Western media and generally academics tend to portray China as speaking with one voice, as this monolithic communist entity. And even though there's been increased repression under Xi, and it means that there's less diversity in public debates and, for example, online chat sites. There's still room to sometimes, in guarded language, especially read about disagreements among elites over any given issue. Debates on international issues include how generous China should be in international development and investing in improving the livelihoods of other countries when there is so much poverty still in the PRC. Debates about how responsible an international player China should be? What does it actually mean that China needs to become a better global citizen? How does one tackle greenhouse gas emission reductions while at the same time ensuring productivity and, of course, above all, employment? So there are certainly stories that I think the West misses. And again, Mandarin literacy would be important to follow some of those important issues. One facet of the Chinese leadership, which I don't think is discussed enough or noticed enough, is the appalling status of women in positions of political importance. What's interesting to note about the really top political leadership in China is the gender imbalance. In fact, according to data, which I've found from a source called China Data Lab, The Communist Party of China continues to be the political party with one of the worst gender imbalances in the world. Among the powerful elite in China, this includes central committee members, but also provincial standing committee members, the share of women has gone up from 
what they say is a dismal 7.6% to a still dismal 8.4% between the 18th Party Congress and the 19th Party Congress, which was 2017. So it's interesting that though on many fronts, gender equality has made great strides during the reform period, the last 30, 40 years in China, in political power terms, women are acutely discriminated against despite, for example, Mao's very famous saying that women hold up half the sky. And another interesting facet of political leadership in China is that during the Xi Jinping era, the age of important people has crept up. That's because he's done away not only with his own term limits, he's also looked the other way with all the different informal rules and regulations that were in force about when a person should retire approximately at age 65. He's let many of these 65-year-olds continue if they are loyal supporters of him, loyal believers in Xi Jinping. So quite worryingly, while China had taken a turn towards giving younger people a chance to become politically powerful during the Hu Jintao era, that's all been reversed during the Xi Jinping era. Very interesting, Linda. And before we wrap up what I'm sure will be just the first half of our conversation, if I can ask the same question I asked a moment ago about the mechanisms of change, I mean, is there a recognition, even put the youth issue to one side on the question of gender? How could the top leadership be persuaded that its decision-making is going to be vastly improved if it can take steps to rectify this imbalance. Can that pressure come from women? Can it come from elites generally, from the public generally? Uh, Can we be at all optimistic about this? On this front, I think public opinion does have an impact. Certainly political elites, business elites do have an impact. It's on questions which don't go to the legitimacy of the CPC, where a lot more is happening as far as pluralism is concerned, despite the repressive measures and even more repression under Xi Jinping. So I do think that as China becomes richer and more powerful, they will have to take the middle class's desires into consideration, just as they already do when it comes to the environment. The environment was not top of the political agenda when I moved to China in 1987. It still wasn't top of the agenda in 1997. But Mm. by the time I left China in 2011, environmental issues were absolutely a political imperative for the CPC. And that came from grassroots level activism, from the acknowledgement that middle class citizens will not tolerate living in polluted air and being subjected to polluted water and so on and so forth. So I do believe that every once in a while there'll be an issue that the CPC leadership just simply has to grasp and change its ways about, as long as it doesn't go to the core legitimacy of the one-party system staying and remaining the only alternative for the PRC politically. It always comes down to that. On the contrary, you would hope that you could actually make rectifying this imbalance part of that legitimacy, that whether it's from primarily domestic mechanisms, but perhaps there is a role for the international community as well in China's status abroad on the global stage, that bringing women into into the tent is essential for a modern great power, but also a modern and legitimate government. It could be a very fertile pathway. We can be optimistic, let's say. Absolutely. I think um, the CPC leadership already knows acknowledges that they have a problem with gender imbalance as far as political power is concerned. And I I just mentioned the South Korean example. Before the Women's UN Conference was held in Beijing in 1995, the South Korean government suddenly woke up to realize that of OECD countries, they were at the absolute bottom when it came to gender equality and inequality and were very embarrassed about it and suddenly appointed a whole host of female ambassadors around the world to improve those statistics just before the UN conference on women. So international pressure can lead to results. Absolutely. That's all for part one of our fascinating conversation with Linda Jacobson. And I want to quickly thank AIIA intern Dominique Yap and Rory Stenning, uh, as always. And please tune in for part two of the episode, which will focus on Australia-China relations very soon. Thanks and talk to you soon.